Welcome to episode 13 of the Corporate Real Estate Insider Podcast. We are back with another episode. We have a slew of interesting topics we're covering today, starting with uh, discussing the recently released Gallup State of the Work Report. Uh, Brian's going to be covering that here in just a moment. We're also talking about some capital markets and sale leaseback updates, what's going on out there uh, as it relates to interest rates and how that's affecting the pricing of these different buildings. Uh, also going to be talking about some international markets uh, as well as appraisals. So have a full slate of topics today. Let's jump right in with Brian on the Gallup report. Yeah, thanks, Tucker. Um, so if you're not familiar, Gallup releases, I believe it's annually, uh, a report. They poll or they um, go out to 60,000 people globally. So it's a global report. And some of the highlights that are just I find so interesting um, just to run through them. So the percentage of employees thriving at work is at all-time highs, which is around 23%. However, the majority of the world's workforce are quietly quitting. So 59% of the world's workforce is quietly quitting. 18% is actively quitting, which actively means that you're actively taking steps to undermine leadership or the direction of your company. So I thought that was just mind blowing. Um, I think a third point is employees are still feeling very stressed at work. So it's at all time highs. Um, <clears throat> and the last point is engagement. So a, a big piece of the report is around what causes people to quietly quit or actively quit. And engagement is a, a big piece of that. Um, and this is no surprise. Engagement has a almost four, four times more influence on employee stress than work location. So people will feel less stressed. They'll be more engaged. Um, I mean, they will be feel less stressed if their engagement is high, regardless of where they have to commute to work. So those are some highlights. Thought was really interesting. Can, can you tell me a little bit more about this act, actual quote actual quitting at eighteen percent, I would think of actual quitting as quitting your job, not you know staying employed and trying to undermine. Uh, is that the definition the report's using? If I said actual, it's active, actively, um, actively disengaged. So they call it loud quitting. So what the definition is is these employees take actions to directly harm. An organization undercutting its goals and opposing its leaders. At some point along the way, the trust between employee and employer was severely broken. Or the employee has woefully mismatched to a role causing constant crisis. So that's 18% of this of the global workforce. Nearly one in five actively <laughs> trying to harm the companies that they work for. That's pretty insane. Yeah, you know what stands out to me and what did you say? 23% are thriving and that's an all time high. Yeah, that's depressing. I'm thriving. Like, are you guys thriving? Are, are we an odd subset of the workers of the world? Aren't are you supposed to thrive at your work? Honestly, I, I feel like I thrive every day. I love what I do. It's, 23%. It's, this report is scary. Yeah. Well, I think part of it might be the fact that we're coming off of, you know, this time where by and large, everybody, the whole country was working from home less 
you know, food service providers and healthcare workers and so forth. And it might just be a function of, oh my gosh, I have to get back to work. And now I'm getting, you know, called back to the office, even if it's just a couple days a week, this is horrible. I'm used to working from home. And, um, you know, that alone might just be enough to tip the scale. Um, when in fact, it's just a reversion to the mean. Uh, but some people just, I don't know, maybe they can't handle it, but maybe I'm just Pollyanna. I mean, we just got through a pandemic. We're back to work in more flexible and creative ways. We have good jobs. You know, if you're working, I just don't get it. 23% all time high for thriving. That's yeah, if you want, if you want my take on it is, <clears throat> I think a lot of what Owen, you're exactly right, but it's more of the crisis is in management. It's in the ability, your the workforce around them is changing, not only in terms of what they're, what they want, but where they are physically. And I think managers all the way from senior leadership down are really struggling at these organizations to keep their people engaged the old way. The old way was they're at their desks and you and you had a very direct line of sight or direct contact to keep people engaged and happy and a part of the team. And now they have to manage a whole different way. And it's and it's really changed their ability to be effective is, is what is the way that I see it. If anyone on the podcast is interested, it is a public um, you can get it for free. The report is out there. Um, we downloaded it and um, certainly reach out if, if anyone wants it or just go on the Gallup. Um, you know, global workplace 2023 report is the, is the data source. I'll go next with an article. Uh, this comes from one of the large, largest full service real estate brokerage firms doing a report on where real estate rents are on the rise. Um, I'm sure they're looking for a good news story. They appear to have found one and what they're describing are urban fringe neighborhoods. They give the examples of Chicago's former meatpacking district, Fulton Market, where they're claiming 43% rise in rents since 2019. Seoul's Gangnam neighborhood rents up 24% over the last five years. The South End in Charlotte, North Carolina, 33% rent growth. Also, Berlin's Prinzlauerberg neighborhood. The idea being people aren't going back downtown, but they're looking to go back to the office. And these offices on the fringe of the downtown urban core seem to be in high demand. It's an interesting premise. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think I've heard a lot about this over the last year. I think we talked about a little bit on the on an earlier pod, just predicting, personally predicting that as you as you see people continue to push towards working from home and having a hybrid workforce, companies are going to to try to figure out how to instead of bringing their people to the office, bring the office to the people and. <clears throat> certainly there's there's uh, a benefit for these and I wouldn't even call them fringe but they're they're the the neighborhoods that people want to be in because there's all of the components of a real neighborhood there's housing there's retail there's restaurants and now there's office and that live work play that's been a you know uh, a phrase that the industry has used for a long time is now coming to more of an urban environment where if you just think of New York City, like, do you really want to live or work in in Midtown South where, you know, you're not going to live there? Your commute's difficult at best or very long and difficult. Or do you want to work in Brooklyn and walk to work? Right. And, and that's a game changer for for these large urban cities that um, 
that the people don't want to work five days a week from the office. So the days they come in, they can walk down the street or they can jump on the bus or they can ride their bike rather than, you know, sit on long train rides or, or sit in their car for, you know, hours in traffic. So it all makes sense. It's, uh, it's scary in the sense that what's going to happen to these urban cores. It's a topic we've continued to talk about, but it's great to hear that, um, you know, there's a sign of life, at least in these fringe markets for large, you know, large population centers. We, we have talked about this before, and I'm just maybe I see everything with an economic lens. But, you know, my prediction is that the rents in the urban centers will come down enough to lure companies back in for financial motives, just like the rents in the suburbs originally drew clients out to less expensive real estate. It's just going to swing back and forth and economics will be the driver. Other than the obsolete buildings that are going to be raised entirely, but. I think economic forces draw people out and back. So that the premise of these fringe markets doing so well is, you know, the neighborhoods that people want to be in, great housing, the ability to, you know, live, work, play, like what Brian was saying. So how how do you think about this? Um, in Los Angeles, there's more multifamily construction in downtown Los Angeles than there is in any other part of Los Angeles. Um, interestingly, Downtown also has the highest multifamily vacancy rate, and that's because primarily there's been so much new construction for apartments that have been delivered. There's been 2,700 apartments that were delivered in the last two years in downtown LA, which is a massive amount of apartments, right? So do you think that over time, these urban cores become much more attractive? People start living there, and then all of a sudden, if you're trying to bring the office to your employees, being in downtown actually accomplishes that because you could have such a high percentage of your team that, you know, lives in this walkable area that's also affordable because vacancies highest there than anywhere else in L.A. That's a good question. I mean, we've got a tremendous amount of multifamily here in Seattle, um, much of which is mirrored what you would see if you went to Vancouver, B.C., um, where they've got a tremendous amount of multifamily in the urban core. Um but I'm seeing absolutely zero translation between um, the development and eventual occupancy of multifamily downtown and the occupancy uh, and the leasing velocity of office space downtown. Um, I think people are, they like working, living downtown for reasons that have nothing to do with being close to the office. Uh, so I don't think there's gonna be a correlation. I do think, however, that having multifamily in a downtown urban core helps with the vibrancy um, one of my complaints about visiting Los Angeles many, many years ago, over a decade ago, was that, you know, downtown, by and large, you know, after five o'clock was, there wasn't much going on. Like, it wasn't a, a place to be. Um, it wasn't that it was unsafe, but it just it didn't provide a lot of nightlife, restaurants, bars, that type of thing. Um, whereas I would hope that with the increasing amount of multifamily, you're going to see a lot more retailers kind of activate the downtown core, which makes it more of a 24-hour city like New York. Um, I think that that in itself will, will help all of downtowns, but I don't think there's any correlation between multifamily and office, but I could be wrong. There could be a study out there that could prove me wrong, but that's just my own interpretation. Yeah, my, I do have a, <clears throat> my opinion is that over time, there's going to be a strong correlation between the two. In cities that have gotten the other aspects of of living and working in an urban core, right? I mean, LA is putting all this housing up, but is it really a place that you want to go out at night? Like you said, is there the retail there? Is the is the city feel safe? 
Is there good public transportation? Like all the things that you need in certain cities like Boston, uh, it's working, right? It's a, it's a smaller city. It's, it's easier to, to make it happen. But uh, the cities where you don't see that good mix of, a, you know, a good, um, safe environment, strong work base, and housing, you're seeing one of those pieces fall apart is really causing, I think, a delay in that, in the evolution of that of that trend, right? So um, I think put the housing there, and people are going to end up living there, and they're going to want to work there because it's a lot easier to commute across the street than it is. But you got to bring the other pieces together, and that takes time. Like LA is not going to solve this overnight. Um, and listening to the even this morning, Barry Sternlich was talking about this, and he said residential, like. No one thought residential is going to continue to see rent growth that they've seen through this last cycle, right? So these last few years, you'd start to see all this new inventory come to market. You'd see interest rates coming up. You see consumer demand still strong, but more price sensitive. Residential still growing like crazy. So are we, you know, are we poised to see a much larger rent growth on the backside of this uncertainty? Like it's, it could be. You could see double-digit rent growth again in some of these buildings. And what does that mean? It means they're going to continue to build housing because rent growth is still there, which means it's going to bring more people down there. And I think eventually it, it should be a driver to, to, to what we were talking about, bringing, bringing that, um, the, the employees back to these urban cores. So a couple things. Um, again, yeah, I probably am – building a reputation for being the contrarian on the podcast with everything that's going on. But this gap in economic stats that have been released for the first quarter in the actual economy is crazy. Um, and that's just me. I'm not an economist, but I'm reading what the Fed's pumping out and what I'm seeing in real life um, from talking to my clients, looking at you know what's going on in the cities that we all work in across the country. It's just crazy. And I'm talking about jobs numbers, GDP, uh, all of it. It just seems off. And so bringing it back to real estate, I mean, look at what's going on in Silicon Valley right now, guys. I mean, it is um, Silicon Valley companies are dumping office space at a really fast accelerating pace. And during the pandemic, a lot of them were gobbling up space, taking space. And we were starting to wonder, at least I was like, what do they know that we don't know? Like they're all taking down space when everyone is like working from home and nobody's going to the office. And now they're finally like, okay. We took too much or we have too much. Let's get rid of it. Now, I want to suggest it's not because they're working from home because Google, in fact, has come out and said that office attendance is part of your performance review going forward. So these big companies are suggesting that, like, you don't get to work from home five days a week. That is no longer an option. So it suggests, however, that they took way too much space anticipating job growth and just their employee headcount. And they're finally starting to realize that it's it's time to let go of space. We took too much. We don't have that population or need space for that future population anymore. We're a much smaller company or we're going to be a much smaller company going forward. And so what's astonishing about Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley for years has been like one of the hottest real estate markets in the country with some of the highest rents um, where you would surpass even what you would see in downtown San Francisco. Um, and Google recently has put 1.3 million square feet of space on the market. Um, you've seen vacancy in Silicon Valley push as high as 20%, just behind downtown San Francisco, which is at 25%. Um, since 2019, uh, we've seen sublet space, so space being subleased by 
the big tech companies in Silicon Valley go from 2.7 million to what today is 7.6 million square feet. Um, and so it's, I just find it rather astonishing. And then what's even crazier is that I, I listen to a lot of earnings calls from the major landlords in the country just to hear what they have to say. Um, and this past week, I was listening to Boston Properties and they're building a 1.1 million square foot office complex in Silicon Valley, huge building, delivers in 2025. And it's just so I don't miss quotes, I actually wrote this down. I had to stop the, the uh, earnings call and, and write this down. The president of Boston Properties said, quote, there's not a lot of technology demand in the market today. And then when referencing that project, it's called Platform 16 in Silicon Valley, 1.1 million square feet of spec office they're building. He said, um, quote, there are no conversations going on there when he was asked about the leasing activity um, in, in that property. And so to think of a landlord building 1.1 million square feet of brand new, amazing, beautiful office space in Silicon Valley, a market that historically has performed extremely well, even through recessions, and they don't have a single conversation going on with a single company about leasing space. That's, that's crazy. Um, and the disconnect, and this is what where I'm going with this is like, it's just the disconnect between what some people are suggesting is what's going on out there. And what I'm seeing based on conversations I'm having with CFOs and CEOs, leasing activity in the market, the amount of sublease space hitting the market, there's just a massive disconnect. And, um, there are certainly companies doing well out there. And even the companies that are laying people off, they're doing well. But it's just not correlating, in my opinion, with the job numbers and the GDP that I'm seeing come out of the Fed in the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Hey, guys, let's not forget this all happens, you know, has happened before. The tech wreck, 2000, you know, San Francisco, the highs are higher and the lows are lower and the cycles come on quicker. Um, I'm not sure this is fundamentally different. San Francisco, Bay Area, Silicon Valley, it's a remarkable place. Um, center of tech innovation, you know, the, the network effect of the, you know, venture community. That's all right there beneath the surface. How long it takes to bring it back, I don't know. But like there will be another wave of innovation, acceleration and growth. Um, just in, in the Bay Area, the highs are higher and the lows are lower. It's always been that way. And at the end of the day, it's still a wonderful City. No, nobody's suggesting it's not, John. I think I think the area is awesome. I I love it. Um, I used to, to vacation there with my wife just before we had kids as like a couple's trip. We'd go down there for 48, 72 hours. Um, but the enormity of what's going on and, you know, what is now being reported is is like a 180 degree difference than what we were hearing during the pandemic. I mean, in downtown San Francisco is no exception. Uh, you know, Westfield Mall defaulted on their loan. Um, the two biggest hotels in downtown San Francisco defaulted on their loan. 2,900 hotel rooms are giving the buildings back to the bank, um, citing the lack of occupancy due to the crime and, and what's going on in San Francisco. So the correction we're seeing now, I think we're just starting to see the beginnings of it. Um, I think the pandemic was just a precursor. I think what we're seeing now is that companies are finally going, you know what? We probably took too much space. Again, work from home. I'm, I'm not even bringing that into the equation. I'm talking about people that just took too much space anticipating massive surges of employment and and the amount of employees they have to have space for. I think they overextended what their actual needs are going to be. So um, I think what we're seeing is finally big tech is catching up on the office space side with their uh, with their usage and their needs. What do you think is a bigger concern? And I, and I you, this 
this question comes from your comment on the Westfield Mall. The Westfield Mall defaulting on their debt or the major retailers of the Westfield Mall pulling out because they don't think they it, it's the right place to be doing business. Yeah, I've, I've spent a lot of time learning about what's going on in San Francisco from up here in Seattle because we're not, in some respects, not far behind them. We're almost like their sister city, I would say. And what's astonishing about San Francisco is Union Square, which has historically been one of the hottest you know, places to visit when you're in San Francisco, and especially in terms of retail, has lost 70 retailers in, in the last three years. And these are retailers like Ray-Ban has moved out. Nordstrom closed their flagship store there. Um, the list goes on. Name, name a major retailer. The Gap, who was founded in San Francisco, closed their store. And so what's more concerning to me is the lack of confidence major name brand, worldwide brand, essentially, um, retailers saying to the public, we don't have faith in this city anymore, and therefore we're closing our store. That to me is more concerning than Westfield defaulting on their loan by far. We've talked a lot about all of the different asset types on this podcast that are doing poorly, right? Industrials finally slowing down. Life sciences, we have this tsunami of sublease space and new construction coming on the market at a time where in most life science hubs demand is down by three four x compared to where it was uh you know during the heat of the pandemic are you all aware of any real estate product types that are actually performing well and and by well i don't mean like industrial still performing well for example right but rents are coming down uh, it's headed in the wrong direction uh or you know, maybe in the right direction to, if you're a tenant and hoping to pay lower rents. But um, you all know what I mean. Are you aware of any, um, you know, large scale product types that are doing well? I mean, even when you get into some of these other sectors like self-storage and things like that, that we don't regularly talk about on the podcast, those are also not doing well. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if you all are aware of anything that is, you know, trending up. I am aware of one, which I will share. Yeah, I think I think uh, pre-leased or built-to-suit real estate is just performing better than any, you know, any asset class. As long as you get a signed lease before the building's built, I think you'll be in good shape. Um, no, I don't. I don't. I don't. I can't think of a single asset class other than on the residential side. Um, it's and I wouldn't say performing well. It's holding up. Um, I think because of the lack of inventory on the markets, you're not seeing any significant price decreases yet in, in single, you know, single family residential yeah, or multifamily I would, residential. I, I would say there's, I, I'm interested to hear what you have to say, Tucker, because I don't see a single asset class that's just as performing well coast to coast, regardless, regardless of its locale. I do see projects thriving, like crushing it. I mean, there's retail projects I visit here in Seattle, for example, um, not in downtown, but in the region, malls and outdoor shopping centers that are you, you go there and it's it feels like it always has been. It's been it's every single suite is leased by a retailer and there's shoppers and so forth. But it's very location specific because I'll go to other retail centers and it's a ghost town. So I don't want to just pick on retail, but I think it's location specific um, because there are certainly properties of all asset classes that are thriving. But I, I'm not aware of one that's just by and large, regardless of where it might be, is thriving across the how country. About, how, how about this? What, what about industrial? And by industrial, maybe I don't mean, you know, the, the 
large logistics centers, which, you know, may be threatened by shifting consumer patterns. Um, but imagine 50,000 square feet and smaller industrial sort of the maker space, these people, that space is still, you know, low vacancy rates. What do you think? Yeah, I think that uh, industrial space in supply constrained markets that are more manufacturing oriented versus like third party logistics or, you know, giant warehousing operations, think more like last mile type of stuff uh, is still doing very well. But the the uh, asset type that is performing really well, and I suppose that this is a little bit unique to Los Angeles, although this obviously exists in many other cities um, and areas around the country, is production space. Space for uh, you know people making content, you know movies, TV shows, and also content creators doing you know YouTube, TikTok, those types of things. Um, that product type in Los Angeles is doing very well, and there is in fact uh, more development that is underway to support the success of those types of assets. What's challenging, and what I think becomes a little bit confusing, if you're looking at the data is that there are a number of these large um, companies that produce content that have large studio spaces. You think, you know, Netflix, Amazon Studios, people like that. Um, and many of those companies are in this period of trying to reduce costs, um, shed real estate. And if you look at the space that's actually being shed and you really just isolate that, it is predominantly the office space. Very rarely is it the production space. And the production space that they are shedding is generally being picked up very quickly by other people in the content production space. So as far as I'm aware, that is the only uh, real estate product type of, of reasonable size that's actually doing well um, and certainly is in Los Angeles. And you know, based on my research ahead of this podcast, it appears that uh, it is doing similarly in New York, Atlanta, and some of the other major uh, filming uh, and production hubs around the country. It just was announced uh, over the last uh, week or two that a uh, high-rise tower in downtown LA is being converted to residential. Uh, it's a like 650,000 square foot high-rise building that they're converting to almost 700 apartments. Uh, one of the more narrow floor plates, still a very large floor plate. It's more of a like uh, almost uh, like rectangle with some additional angles that's long. Um, very interested to see the floor plans for this building, though, because it's not a building that you would think is going to be converted to apartments easily. Uh, it's one where you look at and we'd say, OK, maybe there's going to be some interesting uh, window lines and depths in a lot of these apartments, but maybe they can pull it off. Whereas the majority of these other buildings in downtown L.A. have such you know wide and deep and large floor plates that. Uh, I think it's it's impractical. So be interesting to see how many more announcements similar to that we have over the you know coming months and years. Yeah, I, the the conversion to multifamily from an office from a once office building is, I think, insanely risky, and I would not want to be betting on that. And the reason being is that not only are you taking an office building that was purchased based off of you know a future income stream that was perceivably going to be there into perpetuity. Now you're getting rid of every single piece of income. So your NOI goes to zero. Uh, you're spending millions and millions of dollars uh, converting a building 
two apartments that was never designed to be four apartments with the hopes that not only that, you lease it up and at market rents comparative to properties that were originally built and only built to be apartments. So I, I just, I mean, kudos to those that do it and have success. I, I applaud you. Um, it just seems insanely risky. Um, also, given the fact that that building you talk about or others, you know, are delivering 24 months from now, possibly maybe 18. Um, but it'll, I, I think that is by far the most fascinating, um, will be the most fascinating development in the commercial real estate market is how did those buildings perform that were converted when it's 2026 or 27 and we're looking in the rears. I, I can't, I'm really excited to see how that plays out. It's also super expensive. Think about the investment in plumbing. Plumbing. How about how about every single trade that you that you can think of, top to bottom, would need to be rethought, redesigned, and probably ripped out and started over. I mean, if you're an owner of one of those buildings, hate to say it, you're better off defaulting on your loan and going buying one a different one at a much lower base where someone else defaulted. So you could start with a a basis that's a third of of market value if it was a performing office building, right? It's because if you're buying, if you're, if your basis is after 2016 or 17, then you're adding another three, four, five hundred dollars a foot in conversion costs. Now you've got a basis that's through the roof. Like how do you make money on that? It's, it's going to be really challenging to see that play out. Uh, that's what I'm saying. I just don't get it. I, I mean, it's, um, yeah, whoever's funding this, these endeavors, I mean, you're swinging for, a home run and only a home run is what makes sense. I mean, a double, a triple, probably speaking, just doesn't hit the returns you're going to need. But again, I'm excited to see how this plays out. And for those that succeed, kudos to you for seeing it forward. And I applaud the effort. So this is not the scenario that this particular uh, owner is in. But I mean, just thinking through what types of scenarios would it make sense? Uh, and I think it would only really make sense in a scenario where you own the building outright or you have a very high amount of equity on the building and the idea of you know walking away from the equity you do have in the building in whole you know by defaulting on the loan uh, you know doesn't make sense so it's definitely not the situation here i think there's are there are a lot of people uh in that type of situation that maybe you're just not thinking it through fully i mean it's it is it is strange maybe this particular owner which I know has a meaningful amount of debt has, you know, uh, like cross collateralization with other buildings or something like that. Uh, but I agreed it is weird behavior. <clears throat> can we, can I change the top to topic quickly here, which something that came across the wire that I should have remembered to talk about was if, um, if anyone's seen, so Alexandria real estate is a large life science REIT that's national and, um, this activist investor, this is, it kind of plays into a little bit what we're talking about, but this activist, activist invent, investor, Jonathan Litt, who's got a track record for shorting major office REITs, came out with a study in the last five days that looked at, I want to say looked at like five or 600 properties across the country. And what they found was, and he, in his um, summary was that he was, intending to go long on Alexandria because they're, they're not an office REIT. They're insulated from this, um, you know, this, this carnage in the office markets. But what they found was that 
these life science buildings actually have a tremendous amount of office space in them. Then they dug deeper and they were using cell phone data to look at the occupancies of these lab buildings. And the occupancy was less than 50%. Um, and then they were looking at the length of time that the people came into the building that were coming to the building. And it was less than or somewhere right around five hours. So if you're a, a researcher, you're coming into the building, you're doing your, your lab work and you're leaving. So it became this major story that's impacting Alexandria in a major way um, you know, in the markets. But it's just a very, um, you know, it's, it, it's a very thoughtful analysis just below the surface of an asset class that we thought, especially well leased to big pharma, well leased to quality tenants would be insulated from this. But, um, you know, this study has really uh, shaken a lot of, you know, a, a lot of investors and credibility for, for a, REIT, a REIT like Alexandria. Wanted to get yeah, your thoughts. I I think that the the uh, bull case on Alexandria, uh, you know, before this report came out was, hey, look, this is one of the longest standing and largest developers of life science space. They really know what they were, are doing, and they were well ahead of this life sciences correction. I mean, they stopped all new development, um, I believe, eighteen months ago, somewhere around then ago, um, to, you know hoard cash, be in a position to weather whatever life sciences, you know, pullback was coming. So they're better positioned than probably just about anyone in the life sciences space. That, of course, doesn't mean that they're fairly valued, right? It does mean that they probably have the staying power and probably will come out on the other side of whatever happens with life sciences in the coming months or years, significantly better than anyone else that owns that type of product type. But um, I agree. I think it's very likely that life sciences is overvalued based on, um, you know, some of the information that came out of this report. I mean, if people aren't using space over time, I think that the amount of money people spend on space is going to have some correlation with the amount of usage of those people. And it's a matter of is there a way to uh, get out of these spaces, take less space in a more cost cost effective manner without incurring hundreds of dollars per square foot in rebuilding labs and opportunity cost of not having labs up and running. Uh, and that that's the, the part of the study that I think um, maybe could be further diligenced, right? I mean, people assume that everyone's going to operate perfectly rationally. And in, in my experience, and I'm sure your experience in working with a lot of companies, people don't always, um, one, operate perfectly rationally. But two, for life science companies in particular, there's a very big focus, especially right now on eliminating large one-time expenses. And you think about the cost to relocate a life sciences building, it's just so expensive. So will people be willing to pay more rent for space that is too big or you know oversuited for what they need to avoid moving? Probably, but not forever. And it's just a matter of how quickly does this impact occupancy levels of these asset types? Yeah, and let's 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 not not forget two guys. I mean, I, I read all about the short on ARE by Jonathan Litt, and the first thing that came to my mind was, wow. Well, let's just say he's right. Okay, if he's right, think of how distressed all the other people are that during the pandemic, who were not life science developers nor life science owners of real estate think how 
in trouble they are. That all rushed to buy these office buildings that were they were told by others uh, that, oh, yes, this is a conversion. Like there was a tremendous amount of conversions. I think we've talked about that in the previous podcast where office owners were looking to life science as kind of the the lifeline, so to speak, to, you know, save their office building and convert it to life science. Um, those guys all did that, you know, in the last 36 months. And if ARE is in trouble, you have wait for the tsunami to hit the life science market for those people that bought buildings, did conversions that are still, by the way, sitting vacant, um, at least in my market. So um, I'm not suggesting Jonathan's wrong. Obviously, he's got a history of shorting things. He shorted the office market during the pandemic. Um, but my only take is, like, I think we're picking on the biggest life science REIT because they are who they are. Um, but again, if they're in trouble, we've got major systemic problems throughout the life science community for those other smaller landlords. By the way, um, so I'm not predicting what may or may not happen to the value of ARE stock or life science stocks broadly. I will challenge um, his methodology, this idea of the cell phone data in the office usage, in the biotech lab building. I'll, I'll just say this. The whole short game is an interesting game where, you know, coincidentally, he's got this really interesting method that he's used to track cell phone data, and it's showing a weakness that wasn't there before, and it's getting all this media attention. Okay, that serves a purpose. I mean, that helps his short position, presumably, as he gets everybody thinking and worrying about ARE stock price. So there's a whole... But I think it's misguided because... Most lab buildings are comprised of lab at office. And the fact that the lab companies aren't going into the office as much as they were before, okay. But they can't bifurcate the office from the lab. They still need the lab, presumably, if they're conducting studies. Um, so using that cell phone data to say people aren't going in as much as they were before, I believe, is misguided. Uh, they're still and going John, the I think. Lab. You do a lot of life science work like myself, and I've never had a life science company tell me um, they can bifurcate the office from the lab. Because keep in mind for our listeners, a lab building has both what John was just talking about, lab space and office space, okay? and But they charge, the d landlord charges a rental rate on the entire space. They don't bifurcate the rent for, say, hey, this is what you're going to pay on the lab portion of your premises. And this is what you're going to pay on the office. It doesn't work that way. You get one rate for the whole building, okay? And so sometimes we've seen rents for office space being a third of what they are for lab buildings. So presumably, someone that wants to save money might say, well, why don't I put my lab in the lab building and pay $80 a square foot on a net basis and put my office in an office building and pay $30 a square foot um, on a net basis, and therefore save money. But that then puts them in two buildings, potentially blocks apart or maybe, gosh, a mile apart. I've never seen that happen. Um, now, for the large, large life science companies who occupy hundreds of thousands of square feet, sure, maybe they put their um, you know, administration back office functions in an office building. But for the traditional life science company that could be between 5,000, maybe, maybe even 80, 100,000 square feet, are they bifurcating their, their office and lab? No. And so I think, um, John, to your point, I, I would agree with you that the cell phone data is a little to, to, to base your entire short off that, um, maybe among other things, I think is, is short sighted. Uh, yeah, I, I think what you guys are saying is I don't I don't disagree, but I do disagree. <laughs> the 
the thought is first, can you get more efficient in the office space? Do we need as much space? If people aren't utilizing it at the same level, do we need, if we're 100,000 feet, do we need 50,000 feet of office or can we be 75,000 feet? Because the cost of the office is the same as you're paying for the lab, right? So can we, can we downsize? That's the first thing. And I think the answer is, is, is proving out already. The answer is yes. The second thing is the market's softening already. So companies are trying to find a way to extend existing rounds. If it's a 12-month round, they want to push it to 18 or 24 months, right? So companies are trying to find a way to be more efficient. We went from effectively zero subleases, say, 18 months ago to almost 2 million square feet of subleases on the market overnight, right? Over that time frame, not overnight. Um, the third piece is, you know, I've heard this, we can't bifurcate, we can't bifurcate. You know who else used to say that what, ad nauseum? Medical users, hospitals. They, they couldn't, you need to have the offices for the doctors on the campus. You need to have the medical space next to the office space. And you know what the hospitals have done over the last 10 years? They've pulled all non-medical uses off of their campuses and put them in lower cost locations. So it, it's, it's a good, it's a, to me, long term. Does this data mean that overnight we're going to see ARE, who I truly believe is the best landlord in, or one of the best landlords in this space, and they're going to be fine? Um, do I see a huge sea change in this over the next cycle? Yes. I think companies are going to have to look at this differently. And the last point is in this market, ARE just put on the market and sold a five-building portfolio. And what we heard is that is to fund the improvements of a development under construction out at the old arsenal in the Charles in in Watertown to finish that development. So, so are they thinking about their portfolio differently? As we talk, they are forward thinking. They are, they are in a position to probably fund that off their balance sheet or raise cash to do it. Instead, they chose to sell five kind of suburban, um, a couple of them are in Cambridge, but five kind of non-core assets, if you would ask me personally, uh, to fund a core assets completion and conversion. So, are they forward thinking and saying, you know what, we need to, we need to divest of some of our non-core stuff now as well and double down on the stuff that we know is going to be core in the future? Okay, some final thoughts on this uh, short position on uh, Alexandria before we move on to another topic and then wrap up the show. Um, I think Warren's saying that none of us are confident enough after reading his report to be short Alexandria Realty ourselves, right? Like this is a risky proposition even with the uh, major macro headwinds on the life sciences space. So that's that's number one. Number two, I think we can all agree, uh, as said by several of us already, that Alexandria is among the smartest people to invest in life sciences real estate, bar none. And if Alexandria has issues, it means everyone else is probably going to have uh, at least equal, but probably much worse issues than Alexandria Realty will. If I had to buy a life sciences REIT stock right now, I would be buying Alexandria over anyone else's. And I say that with like, a, you know, surface level, uh, level of research in these things. It just other REIT stocks are going to be equally, if not more pummeled. On the other side of this, well capitalized REITs like Alexandria are probably going to pick up market share and be able to perform really well. It doesn't mean, you know, buy, but it means that once there is a price correction, that probably is a very good buy because they've proven themselves to be a top tier investor in the space. Um, what's happening in the life sciences sector, just to remind everyone, it's not just this 
giant wave of subleases that's coming on the market at a time where there's reduced demand and still a lot of direct availability coming to market. It's still primarily interest rates, right? So we're talking about these macro headwinds to life sciences, but the same headwinds are affecting all real estate product types. And it's the fact that, you know, you probably could sell a, you know, core life sciences building with a very strong, you know, credit tenant, depending on which market and all that, at a you know four cap or something, and that's now a six or six and a half or seven cap, depending on the maybe even higher, depending on who the tenant is, how much term there is, where the building's located, and the quality of real estate. So every single one of these buildings, particularly REITs that are valued day to day, right, where they have daily valuations of their buildings because they're publicly traded, um, of course, are going to be really struggling right now. And and by the way. What we're seeing in the way of a pullback is a pullback from an exaggerated, um, you know, there, there was such a mad rush into life science, life science to the rescue during COVID. A lot of first time investors into early stage biotech companies, um, you know, it was so exaggerated, the, the push into life science that this pullback we're seeing is to reduce from that exaggerated uh, mad rush in. So um, you're going to see a lot of follow on investments that don't occur. Um, these companies live with one and two years worth of, you know, run rate, burn rate. And um, so it's not just life science slowing down. It's life science slowing down off of a crazy accelerated high that was exacerbated during uh, the COVID, um, you know, life science to the rescue era. Yeah, and we could talk about this all day long. But the other point that I was listening to yesterday in a meeting was construction costs to, to build lab to build buildings really are continuing to increase at alarming rates, right? People are talking about the supply chain coming back to normal. Inflation on true hard costs is still extremely high. So the costs, when you underwrite the construction of a building and it takes you, you know, years to permit it, years to underwrite it, you have all this rent growth in your model and your costs are still going up and your rent growth is flattening out, even if it's just flattening, if it's still if it's still to the upper right, but it's just a little flatter, it's going to really challenge some of these investment models for, for new construction. And as soon as you start to see the, the pullback, interest rates, and then, and then a flattening of rents and in, continued increase in construction costs means construction is going to dry up across this asset class, but many asset classes, that, that behind that that period is always a, a really challenging period for tenants because you have low supply and, and when demand comes back, a higher demand. So it's, it's not a good thing for anyone, I don't think, if this, if this environment continues um, because if you can't keep supply and demand at equilibrium, it's not great for developers now and it's not great for tenants in the future. Okay. Very interesting podcast today. We are out of time to be able to talk about international market stuff and appraisals. We'll be covering that in a future podcast. Uh, Thanks so much for listening to episode 13, and we will be back with episode 14 soon. Uh, Heads up to our listeners that over these summer months, we're going to be sticking with a shorter episode format, uh, right around 30 minutes instead of around an hour mostly sticking to uh, a handful of interesting news topics that come out. uh, And we will be sure to also cover uh, international market and appraisal things uh, on one of those episodes in a short window. Um, Thanks so much. Thanks.